Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is Themeless Thursday. We're going to talk about a variety of news today, like governments, helicopters, and space. Get ready for another day in Black History Month. Here is our headlines. Today on Before Coffee, alarm sounded over prison-like UK immigration centers. The search is on for five Marines missing in a helicopter crash in the California mountains. The task of forming a majority government in the Netherlands just got a lot harder. And we go to space and we further investigate Black History Month. How do we feel music? New research suggests it could be universal. Those stories and more which is National Boy Scouts Day, February 8th, 2024, on Before Coffee. Immigration. A lot of people don't like it. For some reason, a lot of governments don't like it. And looks like they're also giving people who do it bad conditions to live in. This is from Euronews. A new report has urged UK authorities to make a raft of improvements inside immigration detention centers, including detention conditions and staffing issues. Immigration detention centers in the United Kingdom will still have a long way to go. That's according to a new report by the European Committee for Prevention of Torture. You know it's bad when they report on you, released on, well at least today, released here today on the February 8th, Thursday. During a visit to the country between March and April 2023, it flagged up several issues surrounding the uncertainty of how long migrants will be detained, prison-like conditions in centers, and the treatment of those displaying symptoms of mental illness. The UK government blasted the report, saying it did not recognize much of its content. The CPT reported report put forward a set of recommendations for Downing Street, which currently is trying to get its controversial bill to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda through the House of Lords. The UK should introduce a time limit for holding people under immigration legislation, with the uncertainty of not knowing the length of detention having a negative impact on detainees, it says. Yeah, like how long am I going to stay here? If you guys are going to let me in, I'll just go somewhere else. Just let me know. I'm still waiting in this detention center. At the moment, the UK 1971 Immigration Act does not establish a time limit for detention. This means people can spend six months or even a year or two in detention facilities. Hugh Chetwind, Executive Secretary of CBT, tells Euronews. The uncertainty when you get detained for how long you're going to be there plays into your well-being, Chetwind said, especially if you haven't committed a crime and you're going to be removed. Just let me leave. I don't want to be here anymore. The CBT visited four detention centers located across the, across the country, Derwentside near Newcastle, Brookhouse, Gatwick Airport, and Colnbrook and Harmonsworth in the London area. Detention centers are generally well equipped, according to the report. Some rooms include televisions, cupboards with locks and seating area, and windows that can be easily opened. Yet the CBT determined Brookhouse and Colnbrook detention centers remain prison-like and not appropriate for holding persons. Well then, why are they prison-like? Wait a minute, if they're not appropriate for people, they're not appropriate for anyone. <laughs> there has to be something worse than prison-like, maybe dungeon-like? Maybe that's what they should have said. It's like a dungeon, a medieval dungeon. 
You don't want to be there. While Brooke House has been trying to create a better environment by including wall art, more efforts should be made, the CPT says. Some people reported headaches in the center due to lack of ventilation in the cells, with CPT reporting mold. With a U. That's how serious it is. It's British mold. The Galician also received complaints about the food in all four centers. Concerns surrounded inadequate portions and poor quality. There are no indications of physical ill treatment of staff members to detainees, the report says. It indicates people working in the facilities are generally supportive and have good relationships with everyone. Yet, at Colnebrook and Harmonsworth, there were alleged reports of abusive language by staff members. At Brookhouse, CPT noted moments of dismissive behavior and lack of engagement by staff. Hey, can you help me? Go away! I'm busy. Okay, I'll, I'll go bother someone else, I guess. People in detention centers have good access to mental health teams, the CPT reported, but it said the transfer of patients with severe symptoms of mental illness to a psychiatric hospital remains a concern. CPT also found that some people who have been considered to be unfit for detention were kept in the centers. Under UK rules, vulnerable people must be brought to attention of the authorities that make decisions on detention. If a person's health is likely affected by detention, authorities must then assess whether they should be released, the report says. Still, CPT found in some centers people were categorized incorrectly and stayed in detention despite the implications for their health. Their report raised concerns about the deportation process of foreigners who had committed crimes in the UK, but they were locked up 23 hours a day in their cells in poor conditions with little prospect of removal could amount in inhuman and degrading treatment. Yes, um, being locked up by yourself with no social contact is actually famously incredibly unhealthy for the mental state and health of anybody. doesn't matter who it is, if they've committed a crime or not. Uh, it doesn't do anything except turn you in to a husk of a man, really, because we need connection, even if it's with the guard or something. In response, the UK government said it does not recognize much of the content in the report, as it does not accurately reflect the important work we undertake to ensure the safety and well-being of those in our care. They claim the UK has long fulfilled its human rights obligations and ensured the protection of liberties. Well, yeah. When you're the, on the defense, you're gonna say, this is incorrect because you're defending yourself. Doesn't mean that what's happening is happening. I don't agree with your opinion that we're torturing people, even though they can't go home or go anywhere because we detained them for two to three years. <laughs> it's fine. They love being in a room by themselves for 24 seven a day. Um, either way, there's your update here on the immigration system in the UK and how I don't understand why people have to treat other people like non-human objects that they have to allocate because they're just a number. Your story. One of life's mysteries. In uh, news briefs today, five U.S. Marines are currently missing as their helicopter went down in snow-covered California mountains. This is from BBC. I've tried to get an update. It says 17 hours ago, but I guess there's no updates yet. This, it's uh, currently 4.40 a.m. in California. Five U.S. Marines are missing after helicopter went down in snow-covered California mountains. The CH-53 Super Stallion was which is a troop transport, was found about 45 miles from its destination after the team were reported overdue. But the fate of the five Marines traveling on board is unclear. They were on the training flight 
to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar near San Diego early on Wednesday. The Marine Corps said the troops were on a flight from Las Vegas to Miramar. They are, they are assigned to Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron 361, part of 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. Fire crews were alerted to the missing aircraft at 2.20 local time on Wednesday. Crews were dispatched to an area near Lake Morena, California, before locating the aircraft hours later in Pine Valley in the Cuyamaca Mountains. Rescuers were using ground and aviation assets to locate their crew in coordination with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department and multiple federal, state, and local agencies and the 3rd Marine, Marine Aircraft Wing said in a statement. Search efforts have been hindered by heavy snow and wintry, wintry conditions in the area, officials said. The incident comes in the wake of a winter storm that has dumped heavy rain and several inches of snow in mountainous areas. First introduced to active service in 1981, the CH-53E Super is considered a mainstay of Marine Corps aviation and usually serves in a transport role. It can carry up to 37 passengers. In addition to carrying troops, the helicopter, which is also used in U.S. and Japanese navies, can be used to combat to transport supplies. Marine Corps Super Stallion has a checkered safety record. There have been several serious accidents involving helicopter in recent years. In April 2018, four troops were killed when the Super Stallion crashed near El Centro, California. While in a training mission, in a separate incident in January of 16, 12 Marines were killed when two Super Stallions collided over the Pacific Ocean near Oahu in Hawaii. That doesn't sound like a problem with the helicopter itself, but two of them collided. Seems pilot error? They shouldn't be flying near each other. This was not the first accident to occur in these California mountains recently. In August, the Marine Corps pilot was killed when his FA-18 Hornet jet crashed in an area, area similarly near the Marine Corps Air Station in Miramar. And other news briefs this morning, we have the Supreme Court is going to decide, well, these are going to start arguments on whether Trump can get kicked off the ballot. Yeah, defendant J. Trump is going to get, is off the Colorado ballot for now, but they're going to argue putting him back on. But again, we don't know how this Supreme Court's going to decide because they're highly compromised. And other news, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, the useful idiot. He used to work for, for, uh, Fox News got fired from there. Now he's working for Elon Musk and his his fascist little uh, enterprises. He's interviewing. He's interviewing Vladimir Putin. That's right. He's gonna be Vladimir Putin's little butt boy from now on. There you go, Tucker. Nice promotion. And other news in the space: a massive dead. Ursa satellite will fall back to Earth later this month. This is from BGR.com Science. ERS-2 has been operable since 2011 when the satellite was passivated, which essentially means ESI drained the batteries and fuel so there was less chance of it blowing up and creating more space debris. Now though, the dead satellite will barrel back to Earth, leaving one less piece of junk for other spacecraft to avoid. This was accomplished by performing 66 engine burns which left the satellite stranded in orbit to slowly fall back down to Earth. The ESA also took steps to ensure that the dead satellite would be in, in a fast enough orbital decay that it would re-enter Earth's atmosphere within 15 years. Now the time has come and the massive satellite is slated to fall back to Earth sometime in mid-February. It will make an uncontrolled descent, which means the ESA won't have any control over where the debris lands. 
It is unclear whether it will completely burn up in re-entry or the spacecraft will survive until it hits the surface. Either way, Skywatchers may be able to get a glimpse of a large satellite as it blazes through the atmosphere back to its starting point. Chances are good that it will crash into the oceans as 70% of our planet's surface is covered in water. While it's good to know that the risks of the massive dead satellite hitting a human are very low, they aren't quite zero. That's why it's so important for us to come up with better space junk solutions and why so many are pushing for better ways to bring satellites back down to Earth. Yes, uh, so a couple of weeks here and the next few days you'll be looking up and, uh, well, I don't know, something might hit you on the head. That'll be my luck. I won't, I won't win the lottery, but I'll have a piece of space junk fall on my head. I mean, a large part of my childhood, for some reason, I was scared a meteor could fall in the house. I don't know where that where that came from, but it could happen. Yeah. It came from paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it for you? All right. Let's go it's to my, my long segment of the day, which is... John Heenley's opinion on making a majority government in the Netherlands. This is from The Guardian. Forming a new government in the Netherlands when the election was won by a far-right fire, far right firebrand wanted to ban the Quran, reject all new asylum claims and exit the EU and rip up reams of environmental regulations was never going to be easy. Yeah, trying to disperse, get rid of everything that's good about the world. Yeah, just throw it all away. It's been a lot harder on Tuesday, which was, let me look at my calendar because I'm terrible at time, February 6th. However, after a key potential member walked away from coalition talks, which isn't a surprise because Gert Wilders has had to try this before, making a coalition with the Dutch government and did not work, meaning he has almost no chance of forming a majority administration, although a minority, mi minority cabinet remains a possibility. Wilder's anti-Islam Freedom Party, PVV, won a shock 26% of the vote in November's elections, which was a snap election, so basically the current prime minister was like, I'm out guys, I'm done, and so we had to hire, we had to re-vote, we had to just redo a re-vote, I say we, I wasn't allowed to vote, I'm not allowed to vote for national elections, I'm only allowed to vote for local elections because that actually affects me, but, um, he needs, he has the largest Dutch parliament. There's like 20 million parties in the Netherlands. So 26% is a large fraction of the majority. But it's 37 seats left is short of a majority 150 seat assembly. And they need to negotiate and make a coalition. The leader's preferred option was a four-way alliance with the liberal conservative VVD of the outgoing prime minister Mark Rutte, the Bay Bay Bay, the Agrarian protest party, basically the Dutch farmer protests that happened back in 2020, and a new social contract, NSC, a centrist startup led by a former Christian Democratic, Peter Omzicht. However, Omzicht on Tuesday abruptly declared the first round of coalition talks over, saying he was shocked by reports of the state of Dutch public finances and would not be part of a government that made spending promises and knew it could not keep. Economic experts have said the new government will need to find 17 billion euros in structural spending cuts, a growing bone of contention between the NSC and the VV Day, seen as a fiscal hawks in the PVV and BBB, which want to increase public spending. In truth, Omt Zicht later admitted on TV, spending was the straw that broke the camel's back. The 
NSC leader campaigned on good governance and doing politics differently, and has long had doubts about going into a government with Wilders. Besides Wilders' unconstitutional anti-Islam proposals, the far-right provocateur pledges including ending the free movement of EU workers. Because they don't want people to work in the country, I guess. Increasing drilling for oil and gas because they want earthquakes to return back to the Netherlands. That's right. We were fracking so much there were earthquakes at one point in the Netherlands. Putting 14-year-olds before adult criminal courts and hating, halting military aid to Ukraine. Because, you, as you know, the Dutch are really great at defending their borders from invading armies. Look at World War One and World War Two for more information on that. We need to defend. <laughs> Ukraine needs to win against Peace Russia or else we're going to have to rely on Germany. And, and then, because we don't have an army. Like, we, I mean, there is an army here, but it's not like an actual ready to go. It's like reserves. Ronald Plasterk, the former Home Affairs Minister who's chairing the talks, was due to meet with the three remaining potential coalition partners on Wednesday night with Omtzigt and will present a progress report to Parliament by Monday. Analysts said several scenarios are now possible, some more likely than others. Omtzigt made clear this round of talks is over, but also the process has not collapsed said Professor Sarah DeLange, a political scientist in the University of Amsterdam. I don't know her if you're asking. Uh, I went to that university, but I did not take political science. He was willing to watch. Talk again on some more form of alternative construction. The three remaining partners may now continue with negotiations of a majority government, supported maybe on the formal or informal confidence of support by the NSC. Indications were that PVV, BBB, and VVD all of which expressed disappointment and surprise at Omtzik's decision were clearly getting on very well, Deling said. And right now, you have to say that none, other th none of the other options look very promising. Yeah, the Green Party is not going to side with the like and any of these people. The, and that's the only other big party in the Netherlands, is the Green Party. However, Rem Korteweg, a senior fellow at the Klagendale Institute think tank said that for a minority government to be sustainable, the VVD would have to be prepared to formally enter the Wilders-led coalition rather than lend its parliamentary support. The party's new leader, Dylan Geskolz Zegrius, said after the vote that it would not go into the government with Wilders, but she's coming under pressure from voters to change her mind. It's hard to see how it would work for Wilders otherwise, Kortowek said. An alternative coalition of the VVD, NSC, and the Labour Green Left Alliance, headed by the former European Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans, that finished second in the elections, looks very unlikely at this early stage, Kortowek said. Most political leaders, including Timmermans, have acknowledged that right-wing parties won the election, that Dutch voters clearly want to see a right-wing government formed, and that efforts to do so are far sure. from exhausted. Re-elections, other theoretical possibilities also look unlikely, Gortoweg noted, if only because they stand to benefit no one but Wilders, whose PVV is predicted by most recent polls to win up to 50 seats if the votes were to be held today. He's just getting more and more support as the day goes on, I guess. Both analysts stressed that these were early days and previous governments had been successfully assembled long after one of the original coalition partners had pulled out. The last Dutch coalition took a record 299 days to form, almost an entire year. But even if the partners could reach agreement on policy, Delaying noted, the toughest hurdle may come at the end on who gets what job. 
There are obviously many, many reasons why Wilders would be a difficult choice as Prime Minister, she said. Beyond that, both PVV and BBB are going to find it very hard to come up with qualified people for ministerial roles. The most difficult part of this government formation may prove to be the program, but the personnel. Well, they can always do what the Republicans do, which is just put people who shouldn't have their job in, in, in power and go, Hey, you like buses? You can be in charge of transportation. Yeah! I don't know anything about how transportation works, but I'll do the job. Thanks for the paycheck. You know, that's... <laughs> yeah. You and hate children. You should be in charge of schools and education. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? At the, the Republican plan, yeah. claim the government works, doesn't work, then get in charge of the government, make it not work, and say, hey, I told you the government doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> this is all a mess, and it's not my fault, okay? It's just yeah. the, the premise. Yeah. The premise of a government. I guess I should be a dictator now. That'll solve it. Meddling, <laughs> meddling bureaucracy. Now let me keep all my money and subjugate you all to my low wages. Yeah. Well, that's the end of my uh, article, so about the Dutch election or the Dutch coalition. On to yours. Yeah, there's always a bunch of rich folks pulling the strings behind the scenes you don't see. But yep. Just assume you're being lied to. <laughs> you know, just it's assume safer. it. Don't just go, wow, that guy says what I like to hear. Uh, uh, he's saying what you like to hear. He's got it's you not, now. Man. He's got you pinned. Yeah, or she, or she. <laughs> don't want to exclude everybody from the con game. In other space news, NASA, you've heard of the dark side of the moon, which there really is no dark side of the moon, it's just whatever side we see is. This, the moon doesn't turn, so we never see the other side. But NASA took the Instagram and shared a picture of the moon with its crescent phase. Uh, I got this at HindustanTimes.com, but I'm sure you can go to NASA's website and see the picture. Um, People across the globe have long been fascinated by the moon, and thanks to space agencies such as NASA, we're not only get to learn more about it, but also marvel at the beauty and the images captured by the space agency. Recently, NASA took an Instagram, took to Instagram, so you can look at NASA's Instagram page and see this picture. Took to share a picture of its moon, of the moon with its crescent phase, in its crescent phase. Someday I'll learn how to read. As soon as the image is shared, it garnered significant attention and left many stunned. Our moon is in its waning crescent phase where most of the sunlight is illuminating its far side, the side we can't directly see from Earth. The waning crescent is the last phase before the lunar cycle repeats in the new moon phase where it is completely obscured, obscured from Earth's perspective, wrote NASA in the caption of the post. The space agency further added, seen from the ISS, the moon appears partially lit in the upper middle portion of the image. The Earth appears blue from the faint, with faint white clouds in the atmosphere stretching from the bottom and left to the top right of the image. Black space surrounds the moon. The post is shared February 4th. Since being posted, has gained more than seven... Uh, I think that means seven million likes? And the numbers are still increasing. I only see 4.5 million here. So. The transcription did put a number. Yeah. Anyway, great image. I wish I could live in the moon. This is so pretty, and what a wonderful view. We're among the comments. <laughs> and that's our little space news. And 
Now with Lou, our feature, Black History Month. And we're going to talk about Benjamin Sterling Turner. And he is the last person on Well, no, we got one more on this. One more. This is our sixth person on this. Yeah, we did the previous people on last year's Black History Month in we did, February. Yeah, we did four last year. We got we got a, one more to do after this guy. He's right here. They got a beard. A little lower. Tim. A little lower. There you go. Got it. Yeah. Where? You see it? Got yeah. It? Got it? He has a got a beard. He's the guy. He's the guy who looks really comfortable with the beard. <laughs> Big Okay, Benjamin Turner. We're going to learn all about him. Very interesting story. Benjamin Sterling Turner was the first first African-American lawmaker elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Alabama. Born enslaved, he was a self-made businessman and philanthropist who opened up, opened up a school for formerly enslaved people after the Civil War. During his one term in office, Turner tirelessly defended the ambitions and industriousness of his black constituents and sought to restore peace and repair the lingering economic damage in the war-ravaged South. These people have struggled longer and labored harder and have made more of the raw material than any people in the world, he noted on the House floor. Since they have been free, they have not slackened in their industry, but materially improved their economy. Benjamin Sterling Turner was born enslaved on March 17, 1825 in Halifax County, North Carolina. When Elizabeth Turner, his widowed enslaver, moved to Selma, Alabama in 1830, she brought five-year-old Turner with her. As a child, Benjamin Turner secretly learned to read. Turner was sold at the age of 20 to Major W.H.G., the husband of Elizabeth Turner's stepdaughter. G. owned the hotel that Turner managed. After G.'s death, his brother James became Turner's enslaver. Turner married Independence, an enslaved black woman on January 8, 1857, but their union was severed when G. sold her. The 1870 wow. census indicates that Turner cared for a nine-year-old boy named Osceola. In 1872, Turner married Ella Todd. This is what I say to these people. I say, well, you know, slavery's existed, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, well, your children enslaved too when they were born? Yeah, no, were they, they instantly That's the kind just of slavery separated from the their United family? States. Yeah. Yeah, there were marriage that's dissolved, okay? You know, that's when people defend, defend the marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman, okay? Why weren't slave marriages honored? They were between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. We enforce laws we feel like enforcing. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> By the start of the Civil War, Turner had accumulated enough money to purchase property. When James G. left to serve the Confederate Army, he permitted Turner to operate another of the family's hotels and run and to run and profit from the livery stable. Selma became a hub of, for weapons manufacturing and was captured by the Union Cavalry in the spring of 1865. U.S. troops burned two-thirds of the city and Turner suffered great financial loss as a result. He later sought compensation from the Southern Claims Commission, but it was unclear if he received it. Turner continued to work as a merchant and farmer after the war, recouping many of his losses, eager to provide freed people with educational opportunities that they had long denied. He founded, founded a school in Selma in 1865. In 1867, he attended the Republican State Convention and attracted the attention of local Republican officials. In 1869, Turner was elected to Selma Councilman, elected a, elected a Selma Councilman but he resigned in protest nine months later after the council voted to take monthly compensation from the city. He believed public officials should, should decline payment when the city was in dire financial straits. In 1870, 
Turner made a bid for the Southwestern Alabama seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. He received a chilly reception among white Republicans and was largely forced to finance his own campaign, even selling a horse. So why did these Republicans work to free the slaves? I, I, I didn't understand that part about it. Oh, well, let's, let's, oh no, he's a black man. He's trying to do a white man's job. Let's, let's chill him out. Way to go, assholes. Anyway. He received a chilly reception among white Republicans and was largely forced to finance his own campaign, even selling a horse. Turner worked to, worked to position himself as a candidate who could appeal to the Southerners regardless of race. I emphatically say that my platform is universal pardon, universal suffrage, and universal repudiation of the war debt, he told the crowd in speech in Jackson, Alabama. Let the war go, let go to the devil, the father of the war. He also made specific promises to his black constituents pledging to weed out federal officials who refused to hire black employees. Turner was able to earn strong support from black population, which at nearly 50% of the district constituted the second largest black voting bloc in Alabama. Despite a prominent Democrat's prediction that Turner's nomination will seal the doom of the Republican Party in Northern Alabama, and that the party will be killed so dead that the hand of resurrection will never reach it, Turner defeated Democrat Samuel J. Cummings with 58% of the vote on November 8th election. 58% qualifies as a landslide these days, by the way. In the 42nd Congress, Turner took a generous approach to those who had taken up arm against the government and you're seeing a bill to eliminate legal and political disabilities imposed on former Confederates. Though this bill was never voted on, the amnesty bill that passed in 1872 cleared the restrictions limiting political activities of most part participants in the rebellion. Having witnessed firsthand the devastation of the Civil War in South, Turner spent much of his congressional career seeking financial aid for the state. Turner sought to repair his battle-scarred hometown by sponsoring a bill to appropriate $200,000 for the construction of a federal building in Selma and reconstruction of Selma's St. Paul's Episcopal Church, vowing not to relinquish one foot of ground until I shall have succeeded in my efforts. He argued that an infusion of federal money would help heal the wounds of the war. In Congress, Turner advocated for regions organized farm interests as well as a as its aspiring small smallholders. On February 21st, 1872, he presented a petition from the Board of Trade in Mobile, Alabama, requesting a refund of the cotton taxes collected in the southern states from 1866 to 1868. On May 31st, he submitted a speech to be printed in the Congressional Globe declaring the tax unconstitutional and decrying what he called impoverishing effect on the cotton workers, a disproportionate number of whom were freed people. This goes on for quite a while. Let's go into his life after Congress, after his congressional career. Uh, uh, although Republicans renominated in Turner in 1872, he faced an uphill battle remain in Congress. His economic revitalization bills that failed to pass, and he'd been a target of derision from some prominent African American leaders. One noted condescendingly that his industrial but modest past, Turner had been bar room owner, livery stable keeper, and man destitute of education. After his congressional, well, uh, let's see, he, Lieutenant uh, George Bloomberg running on the Democratic and liberal Republican ticket, benefiting from the split, winning the general election with a 44% plurality. Turner only took 37%. 
and was voted out of Congress. After his congressional career, Turner curtailed his political activities for several years before emerging in 1880 to serve as a delegate to the Republican National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. He also served as a chair of the Republican Executive Committee in the 4th District in 1882. In 1886, Turner campaigned for the House seat representing Alabama's 4th District, seeking returns to Capitol Hill for the 50th Congress. Turner promised a bold and aggressive campaign against the Hyde Hydra-headed democracy that has, has ever struggled to keep us in ignorance and darkness. One of the two Republicans to compete in three-way race, Turner placed last, garnering just 12% of the vote. Turner eventually bought a 640-acre farm in Dallas County, Alabama, but his business suffered during national economic downturn mm. at the end of the 1870s. So he may have regained his fortune by 1890, he hit financial trouble again, amid another economic recession. Turner suffered a stroke in early 1890s, and as both his health and investments failed, he sold the remainder of his farm to pay up debts a few months before his death in Selma, Alabama, March 21st, 1894. History worth remembering, Benjamin Sterling Turner. Back to you. Wow, he really did, he really did live the American life, two recessions and then died. <laughs> That's become the cycle. Penny list the American way. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, American dream. Well, he did a lot of inspiring things in life, and that's what's worth remembering. Rose from slavery to Congress. Yeah, sold off like a freaking about full from a from a cattle. Yeah, like cattle. Yep. And he made it his own. He made his life his own. All right. For our culture segment, we're gonna talk about music. This is from your news culture. What kind of music gets your feet tapping? A Finnish study found that people from different cultures reported the same bodily sensations when listening to the same songs. You know when you when a really good song gives you goosebumps? Or when you can't stop your feet from tapping to a killer beat? What about music-induced head bobs or shoulder shimmies? Movement and emotions are inextricably linked to music. And music inextricably linked to humans. Uh, we create it after all. But if music is the universal language of mankind, does that mean we all respond the same way? A new study out of Finland suggests that despite cultural differences, our bodies and minds respond similar to the groove that's considered happy, sad, tender, scary, aggressive, or groovy. What about funky? You forgot about funky. People seem to feel music in a similar way across distant locations in the world. Finnish researcher Vesa Put Putkinen told Uranus Culture. So that does suggest that there's something universally in how music activates our bodies. Putkinen and the team at the Turku PET Center in Finland compared East Asia and Western participants for their study, choosing two cultures that were geographically opposed with different musical traditions. Why didn't you also choose Africa, famously known for dancing? Just saying. Not saying Asian people don't dance, but you gotta admit it here, everyone. It's Black History Month, and we have to give the credit where it's due. Africa has the best dancers. And so does South America, but only because they have a lot of uh, influence from Africa, I would argue. <laughs> but that's my hot take, if you want to consider it a hot take. Not comparing, comparing Europe to Africa would, I guess, have been too much of a difference. <laughs> people who can't dance versus people who can't dance. <laughs> All right, enough, enough 
trolling on white people dancing. Uh, together with researchers yeah. in China, they surveyed around 2,000 people in the UK, US, and China on how they felt while listening to music. Participants were asked to listen to the same music clips and then color in a drawing of the human body, indicating which body areas they felt changed over the course of the song. The change was left vaguely intentionally, Hootkinen says, so participants could easily self-report their feelings. They didn't have to be physically tapping their toes to the music, but if they felt the urge to, that counted. The results produced what researchers say is a body sensation map, the BSM, that showed how people's bodily sensations they listen to music of the same song. Most striking, despite coming from distinct cultures they that are on the opposite sides of the world, not really. I don't think, I think America is on the opposite opposite side. I don't think the UK and Asia are that different, especially if you consider Hong Kong was a freaking colony for a while. Most striking. Despite coming from distant cultures that are on the opposite side of the world, most participants in the East and West responded the same way. It's kind of even more striking because we didn't have any age limit or take into account socioeconomic factors in any way, Putkinen says. Despite the variety of individual differences across different factors, we found very consistent emotions and body sensations in our responders. It's very rare to get results as clean as these. Shake It Off by Taylor Swift, categorized as a happy song, got all participants feeling changes in their toes. Well, they're also being told to do an action. Shake it off. Right? So maybe that's also part of it, right? The actual lyrics might incorporate... I would believe it more... Here's, here's an idea here. I would do this study again with only instrumentals and then see how your body reacts. Because I feel like the lyrics might have some sort of... Even if you're you know, Chinese and don't know any English, which is almost impossible these days for anybody to not know any English because it's so prevalent, especially in music. But there's probably people out there who only listen to Chinese music, so... I feel like that kind of helps you shake it off. Oh, I should... Oh, I feel the sensation to shake. I wonder why. Maybe because Taylor keeps on saying, telling me to do it. So that might be a problem in that. That's my first hole in this study. Western participants also seemed to feel sensations in their chest a bit more than Eastern participants who instead felt more change in their hands. For metal band Slayer's Angel of Death, wow, they played Slayer? Okay. Slayer! Which was categorized as aggressive, both Western and Eastern participants' feelings were concentrated in the head area. They wanted to headbang. Giving credence to the headbangers of the world. Just don't do it too hard because you will get neck and back problems. Uh... <laughs> In the east, sensations were also felt in the feet and the hands. Some differences did appear. Western participants had more of a gut feeling listening to scary songs than Eastern participants did. Tender and sad songs seemed to hit Westerners more in the chest than their Eastern counterparts. Research has already shown that humans will universally nod their heads and tap their feet to music, an almost reflexive response that starts to emerge while they are still infants. And even if people aren't physically moving, exposure to music can activate sensory motor regions in the brain, meaning the brain is contemplating movement. But emotions brought up by music seems to function differently, and sometimes paradoxically. It's almost like some music is more affecting to your personal, personal history than it's some other people. That's my theory. Relating to real-life situations. In evolutionary psychology, we believe that emotions have evolved because they help us deal with real-life challenges, Putkinen said. He gave fear a 
as a common example, saying that the emotion helps us know when it's time to run away from a potential threat. But music itself is kind of different because it doesn't have any obvious real life consequences. What are you talking about? Me listening to music and singing for like three hours ups my mood way more than if I just sit there and like didn't do that. I don't know. I'd say I think music is a positive consequence on people's lives, even if it's like sad music. Having misery, misery loves company, you know? Listening to some sad music while you're sad makes you let all your emotions out. It raises the question of whether music relies on the same brain mechanism or bodily mechanism as these other emotions. Some of the participants in the study were also asked to describe their emotions while listening to songs. Sad and tender songs are rated highly relaxing but low energy, which might explain why listening to sad songs can sometimes paradoxically make us feel good. I don't think it's a paradox, I think it makes complete sense. <laughs> Sadness in yeah. music is an interesting thing because it's kind of different from real life sadness. We do feel sad, but we don't avoid music-induced sadness in a similar way as we try to avoid mm. being actually miserable in our everyday lives. Though even in the context of music and art, these nominally negative emotions can be felt as positive. A neuroscientist, Putkin, Putkinen, says he'd like to expand the research to see what's actually happening to people's brain activity when they're listening to different genres of music. And start to understand how musi music music sorry music induced emotions operate in the brain. I also want a, him to discover why my brain suddenly couldn't read English for a split second there. <laughs> <laughs> I literally my brain was like, I don't know what that word is. It's the word music. I guess they've said music too much in the article that my brain was like, that's not a word. <laughs> Turku PET Center is working on new research that analyzes brain scans and people as they lie still while listening to music and has a new survey studying the link between music and human emotions. Let me just sign up for that because I'll give them emotions, let me tell you. I cry so easily. I have all of the emotions when I listen to music. But uh, there you go. It's confirmed. Humans are human after all and we all share our love for music. This day in history. Okay, and I just sent you a link for a video. Oh, and right. It's, um, Good point. I guess you can take the part after the famous line. You'll know. You'll know the scene. Uh, this day in history. What happened on this day? Da -da 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 -da. We're back to the Civil War. Oh, Eighteen twenty, yeah. American Civil War general. 1820, American Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman, who was a major architect for modern warfare, especially known for leading Union forces in the crushing campaigns to the South, was born. In 1867, the Osglick Compromise established the dual monarchy, excuse me, of Austria-Hungary. Sorry, I was drinking coffee, so my systems responding accordingly <laughs> by going uh all right anyway 1887 united states passed the dawes general allotment act providing for this distribution of native american reservation land among indigenous individuals the bill was sponsored by senator henry l dawes and i'm sure they did it up just fair as hell didn't they anyway 1915 a landmark film of course it was land until it was uh Indian land until we found minerals or oil on it. Then it became, hey, manifest destiny. 1915, 
the landmark film The Birth of a Nation by W.D.W. Griffith made its premiere in Clunes Auditorium in Los Angeles. While Hale Flirt's technical and dramatic innovations, the epic was condemned for its overt racism and positive portrayal of the Ku Klux Klan. I it's agree. Just a giant it's piece terrible of film. It it's a giant piece of rubbish. Other than the technical achievements, it was propaganda and lies. White basically. supremacist propaganda, yeah. Yeah. You see, we deserve right to be the best. for madness. And you want to watch films put up by Hollywood lackeys trying to suck up to the fascists in the government. You can watch that one or you can watch Reefer Madness. Oh, that's a good one. Same as thing. Well. God. Same thing. Making shit well, up that never one, fucking actually one. happened. What? It's not a what? good one, but it's a bad. It's a good example of a bad, a bad one. Reefer yeah, it's Madness. a good example of propaganda. Yeah. 1920 American actress Lana Turner was born, a sultry Hollywood glamour queen with a tumultuous private life, which kind of goes hand in hand, don't it? 1931, James Dean was was born. Uh, James Dean only made three movies. If you can name all three movies he was in, you win a something. We'll, we'll start giving away prizes. We're going to make our own merchandise at some point. Start giving That's away. What, but, uh, can you name any cost. of the movies he was in? Go ahead. Was it Rebel Without a Cause? Yep. That's only one. That's one. That's the one about the wedding, uh, right? Because that's the only movie I know. Uh, yeah. At the end of the wedding. They also made uh, yeah. Giant. He was in Giant with uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, yeah. And let's see. Uh, let's see his biography here. He only made three movies and got famous. I said he died young. I was gonna. I was going to link you to James Dean's song. But the Eagles block. The Eagles are famous <laughs> for blocking. That was her. Yeah, I don't know if Don Henley wrote it or not, but let's let's just let's shoot under the radar this time. Yeah. Okay. Um, 1974. The use of Skylab, a U.S. space station, came to the end after 171 days. Speaking of space junk, that thing tumbled to Earth and landed on land in Australia. I remember that. Oh. Some. Some uh, aborigines uh, found it. 1976, the American American film classic, classic Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese. Scorsese, let's do this again. Uh, take two. The American film classic Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese, had its world premiere. The drama was especially known for the performance of Robert De Niro as mentally unstable Vietnam War veteran Travis Bickle. In 1999, British novelist and philosopher Dame Iris Murdoch, who wrote more than 25 novels that were distinguished by a mixture of vivid storytelling, cultural allusions, and complex philosophical inquiry, died at age 79. It makes me want to go buy one of her books, man. Yeah, hey, what look the that hell? up. I got some, I got some credits on uh, Audible. I only buy audiobooks now because my eyes are. I agree. I mean, I only listen to audiobooks because I only read when I go to sleep, basically. I just listen to audiobook and then go to sleep. I'm old. (laughs) Plus, I can read a book while I drive. Exactly. French ballerina and dance director in 2016. French ballerina and dance director Violette Verdi was known for her eloquent and buoyant dancing, died at age 82. Our featured event, Mary Queen of Scots beheaded. Mary Queen of Scots, and this day in 1587, 
rival of Queen Elizabeth of England, was beheaded on this day in 1587 at Fording A Castle or execution with a chilling scene redeemed by the great personal dignity with which she met her fate. Of course, uh, I don't know, but a lot of people know this, but she had a little dog and she kept the dog in her, what they called it, muscle in those days. Yeah. Right here, right? And when her head was chopped off, the dog jumped out. Freaked everybody out. Freaked them out. Yep. You want to talk about a bunch of people losing their well, shit. Well, if I'm going to die, oh my God, I'm going to do out of her neck. Yeah. If I'm going to die, I'm going to at least do a prank. Yeah. That's what she <laughs> basically did. Mary Queen of Scots famously. I could have done that Monty Python sketch, too. That could have been it. That's kind of cruel, though. It goes on too long anyway. Oh, the, yeah, the Monty Python. Uh, it's very long. The death yeah. of Mary Queen of Scots. Well, I'll do the highlight. I think she's dead. No, I'm not. That's the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the funniest part. And they just go back to bashing her again. And that's, you know, it's awful. Our I feature biography, Il Gracino, Italian artist. Born February 8th, 1591 in Cento, Italy, and died December 22nd, 1666, age 75 in Bologna, Italy. Other birthdays today, besides James Dean, James Dean, James Dean, too fast to live, too young to die, bye-bye. That's where that song goes. Oh. Anyway, John Williams was born in this day in 1932, an American composer and conductor. Nick Nolte, American actor, born this day in 1941. That makes him 83. Nick Nolte's still hanging in there. Mario Chomarchi, president of Argentina, was born in 1959. And Benigno Aquino, president of the Philippines, born this day in 1960. Days, national days are... Oh, we got to go back to screen, I think. Hello, computer. There you go, buddy. That's it. It's National Boy Scouts Day. It's National Kite Flying Day. Go fly National a kite. Iowa Day. Go fly a kite in Iowa with the Boy Scouts. I hear it's windy there. Thanks, <laughs> sorry. And it's National Giving Hearts Day also. So, of course, Iowa is just an acronym for idiots out wandering around. Oh, that's perfect. And that's your news for... <laughs> go no wander, go wander around with your kite, tie your heart to it, and deliver it to someone. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's your there activity you for today. <laughs> no offense to anybody from Iowa. I'm from Wisconsin. That's what we've always said. Well, at least as far as I can remember. <laughs> so there's your there's your days for today, February eighth, twenty twenty four, on before coffee. Are you oh. talking to me? Anyway. <laughs> Are you talking to me? All right, this is Vin Allison here from the Netherlands, who's hoping that the government will become a government at some point and not kick me out of the country. We will see you tomorrow for our Friday's news dump as we finish off the week before the weekend. Here is your mic drop moment. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? 
Okay. Huh? Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. Who would not let... Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.